what did you learn about sex from filming Sex Education, from playing Dr. Jean Milburn? Well, you know, I don't have much to learn in the sexual arena. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I couldn't. <laughs> how could I not? With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives. All while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season five of the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. The podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests, and I guarantee you'll be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Our guest today is Gillian Anderson, an award winning film, television, and theatre actor, producer, activist, and author who rose to international fame playing FBI special agent Dana Scully in The X Files. She's had countless notable roles from Lady Deadlock in Bleak House, Margaret Thatcher in The Crown, to DSU Stella Gibson in the BBC crime series The Fall, sex therapist Jean Milburn in Sex Education, and most recently, Mrs. Marquis in Netflix's gothic horror film The Pale Blue Eye with Christian Bale. Her extensive accolades include a Primetime Emmy Award, a Golden Globe Award, two Screen Actors Guild Awards and an Evening Standard Theatre Award. Plus, in 2016, Anderson was appointed an honorary OBE. She's just become a War Child Ambassador and has recently launched her own curio podcast, What Do I Know?, which promises to cover everything from social challenges to sexual liberation. Plus, on the topic of sexual expression, Gillian will also be chatting to us about a very exciting new project. Welcome to the podcast, Gillian Anderson. I'm uh, honoured to be here. Thank you for asking me. I would just love to know, first of all, what does reading mean to you? What does reading do to you? I am a strange reader because I find it really hard to give myself permission to read. Um, I only usually read on holiday, which means that it doesn't happen very often. I I purposefully put um, purchase. I, I, I prefer reading a, a real actual book in my hands, but I also struggle with the amount of um paper in books and I struggle also with the fact that I don't allow myself to sit down and read and so I often buy audiobooks because I'm driving my kids uh miles and miles and miles all over the place and so I uh listen um while doing that and um so it's I have a strange I have piles and piles of books because when I hear something is good or when I read about something, I buy it, imagining that at some point in my life I'm going to be less busy and be able to have this library where I can just dip into uh, uh, anything I want, which is kind of ridiculous, but that's my psychology. Oh, no, it's, it's such a romantic notion, isn't it? Having piles and piles of books, having this library of books and being able to dip into love poems one day when you just feel like it or an adventure that takes you away but you're right we often don't give ourselves enough time or, or we see it as this um luxury that we don't always um deserve because there's so many things that we have to do in our day-to-day -day in life it, it is reading then an escape for you yes on the one hand I think it is an escape I do struggle sometimes when I'm in a a book that is in a completely different world from my own or it's not recognizable which is on the one hand 
important and fascinating to uh, get a look into other people's experiences. But then I often get confused in my real life when I come back out and I am interacting in my world, I find it quite disconcerting, which is also why sometimes it's better that I just read on holiday when when the interaction between those things doesn't have consequences, <laughs> really serious consequences. Um, but I find, I, I do find- really, Because you've fully taken yourself out. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I, I do find it grounding um, uh, very much so and feel it slows me down. It's one of the only things that, that um, can, you know, that I allow to every once in a while pull me away from my busyness. And what sort of books do you, find yourself gravitating towards? I think if you were to look at a cross-section of uh, my piles, um, it would be uh, edgy books that uh, give some kind of insight into modern women's minds and lives. Um, I also, um, I, I like the idea of biographies um, political books, um, books about the brain. I seem to collect those and not read them. <laughs> this is, I'm really <laughs> revealing uh, a pathology here that I'm not sure I'm entirely comfortable with. But so the ones that I actually do end up picking up are the ones that are probably, yes, um, that have... Uh, women at the centre of them in some way. Well, this feels like the perfect podcast for you because we are all about books by women, with women at the centre that elicit all these feelings in women. Um, although I do totally relate to you. I've got lots of books with brilliant blurbs <laughs> that, that seemed interesting at the time. I thought, I'll, I'll really want to know about that thing, but I haven't got into in the same way that stories take me away. So let's get taken away with your bookshelfy books today. And your first one is My Secret Garden by Nancy Friday. First published in 1973, this groundbreaking exploration of female desire featured hundreds of women safe behind the walls of anonymity, responding to Nancy Friday's call for details of their own most private sexual fantasies. This multi-million copy bestseller is the daring compilation of those fantasies. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you first came across this book? Well, <laughs> I would have thought that I would have uh, purposefully um, uh, searched out this book much earlier than I actually found it. Um, I'd heard about it for a long time and um, it wasn't really until I was working on sex education and doing research for sex education that um, uh, I think, you know, somebody had brought it up and I thought, oh, my, of course, yes, I must finally read that. And so that's when I first discovered it, which is what, I don't know, four or five years ago, maybe longer. I can't remember when I started sex. And what was your experience like of, of reading it for the first time? You know, it's quite shocking, um, but but not necessarily in the way that you'd expect. Um, that there's a level of intimacy and honesty from the women who are interviewed who is just completely extraordinary. Um, women are sharing their deepest fantasies in an unfiltered, raw way. Um, that you know, it's almost as if they're they're not 
masking themselves for a reader at all. And so, so the stories seem, or you know, their interviews um, that they seem to divulge something truly personal and and true. And it feels, you know, in reading it, it feels like you're privileged to be given permission to observe something that for many of us, uh, you know, would be totally private. But also what's fascinating is that that for most of the women or for many of the women, there's a, uh, a, a an admission of deep shame and guilt. There was still a lot of, I, I hate using this word, but uh, prudishness and embarrassment around sex and what they fantasize about, which um, which was fascinating because these stories were shared during a time when we often think of as as being sexually liberated in the middle of the of the seventies, post you know the swinging sixties and the decade of love, and you know in the middle of a sexual revolution. And so to actually look at how this or often is or isn't reflected in the lives of real normal women. I think is interesting. By the time this podcast comes out, you will have announced a very exciting new project inspired by Nancy Ryder's revolutionary bestseller. Could you tell us a little bit about it? So yes, I, I think very much inspired by it. Um, so I'm asking women from around the world to write to me anonymously, and it will be anonymously, revealing their sexual fantasies. So... Um, the letters that I receive will be included in what I hope will be, you know, a generation-defining book uh, that will be published by Bloomsbury and will be a revelatory, let's say, <laughs> portrait of women's sexuality and, and, and what it means to be a woman today. So, you know, I'm asking for women who, uh, if you identify as a woman, whatever your background or whoever you do or don't sleep with, whether you're 18 or 80, I want to hear from you. I love this. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm so excited to read this. Why is it that you decided that it was time for um, for a 21st century relook at the exploration of women's sex lives that, that Nancy Friday started back in the 70s? Well, I think, you know, today... Thank God we are living in a different world, you know, 40 years on from My Secret Garden, uh, from its publication. And, you know, women today can talk about sex with uh, with our contemporaries. And, and I, I think that's one of the things that I find so freeing about our show Sex Education is that we show characters who struggle with their sexual relations um, and yet, they are courageous enough, they're brave enough to talk about it with their lovers and partners. We see them discussing what it is that they want and that they hopefully then end up getting what they feel they need sexually. And the show, you know, puts it all on a table in a way that makes it okay to talk about. And I guess that's why I thought it, it might be time for, you know, a reboot of My Secret Garden, so to speak. I want it to feel inclusive across the board you know so whether you are uh, queer heterosexual bisexual non-binary transgender polymorous young and old whatever your religion whether you're married or single I want you to write to me and tell me what you think about when you think about sex so we're launching it 
on the 1st until the 28th of February, until midnight on the 28th of February, 2023. It's completely secure. www.deargillian.com Encrypted portal to ensure anonymity, obviously. And we will hopefully, I mean, we're hoping that letters come in from all over the world and with the knowledge that it's, um, you know, we've done, we've worked with data protection people and lawyers and yada, 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 been working for months to create something that is truly anonymous so that people from anywhere feel safe in sending in uh, their letters. I'm absolutely fascinated to see what we, uh, what we end up with. You mentioned that you first stumbled upon My Secret Garden by Nancy Friday while you were filming Sex Education, which is just such a brilliant, beautiful, joyful show that every single person I know absolutely loves. What did you learn about sex from filming Sex Education, from playing Dr. Jean Milburn? Well, you know, I don't have much to learn in the sexual arena I'm joking. I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. I don't know. You know, there was certainly some activities, particularly around gay sex, that I'd never uh, heard of before. I felt like, even though, you know, even though my character obviously is very open, sometimes, you know, too open, uh, incredibly liberal and sexually free. And I, I feel like I am. I don't feel like I, uh, I mean, I, I probably do, but I, I believe I don't um, I have. There's nothing that usually shocks me, but even in, in watching the show and even though I'd read the episodes, you know, in watching the show, I remember gasping a few times. There were moments when I thought, can we say that? I went, really? That's... God bless Netflix. Yeah, God bless Netflix. You, you, of course, have a few sex scenes in Sex Ed. Um, has your attitude towards filming these kind of scenes, has that changed as you've progressed through your career? Oh, d- definitely. I mean, there is, um, there are today, post Me Too and Time's Up, there are intimacy professionals who come on to sets now or should come on to sets to um, be present so that everyone feels like what they are talking about, what they are about to do, what they're about to engage in uh, is they're comfortable with and they know that they feel protected or if anything feels uncomfortable, they can put their hand up and say, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh. I mean, I I was working on a show called The Great and uh, my character um, seduces the husband of my daughter. Um, (laughs) And... um, we, we had an intimacy uh, specialist there and I thought that what she was going to be saying to us is, you know, what was, you know, kind of putting a straitjacket on in terms of what we could and couldn't do or what was appropriate or what would be coming towards. She was actually suggesting things that were so much raunchier than what I had imagined for the scene. That was like, okay, I could do that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, right, right. Um, So, you know, but at least, you know, because it's out on the table, you're all talking about it. It's right in front of you. Um, uh, You know, and I had an opportunity to say, no, that's not for me. Um, But, you know, me, I just say yes to everything. But that's another conversation. (laughs) 
Well, on the subject of talking freely and openly, we move on to your second book, which is the searingly beautiful Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. This novel follows Martha, who has just turned 40 and is struggling to find contentment throughout her adult life. It paints this brutally honest portrayal of a marriage in breakdown and possibly one of the best written sibling relationships out there. Mason blends honesty and laugh out loud humor to tackle the theme of long-term mental illness with poignancy and tremendous heart. Now, this book, Gillian, was on the Women's Prize for Fiction shortlist um, this year just gone by. We know it's one that our listeners are very familiar with, that they love, that is Mm. loved by so many. But what was it that you loved about this book? I think it's in the title. To be honest, I mean it's the it's the the duality of humour and despair. It's you know it, it's one of those rare books that kind of makes you <laughs> cackle with laughter at one moment and then rips your heart out the next moment and you know utterly destroys and devastates you. Um, and, and I think that's what you want when you go to fiction. At least that's what I want. Uh, you know, what, why do we read if not to feel something? I love this book. Yeah, it, it utterly destroys you. Um, it also utterly restores you. I remember feeling devastated and then in raptures at other times, knowing that with sorrow can also come bliss, that the two mm-hmm. can can live together inside me, inside any woman, inside any person. Mm. Um, You've actually been quoted as saying that every girl and woman should read this book. Um, Can you tell us why you feel this way? You know, I I think that most of us can find something in Martha to relate to, you know, whether we want to or not. Um, um, And one of the many wonderful uh, things about the book is that it, it loves its characters for all of their real, uh, messy, unlikable aspects. Um, and, and I guess there's something about giving women permission to be unlikable that I like, that Martha doesn't have to make good decisions or behave in ways that we agree with uh, to be worthy of our sympathy or our understanding you know she doesn't need to be a perfect partner or daughter or sister or friend and I I think that we need to see that we women need to see that 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 it's okay to be messy and sometimes terrible and that you know despite that we can also be deserving of love and that's you know both both of the, those things they can be true at, at, at the same time. I really think it does speak to um, this feeling that so many women have uh, of, of feeling unlovable at times, which I don't think I've ever spoken about. I don't feel like it's a conversation we're encouraged to have. And in the same way we were just chatting about um, the fact that women have often felt inhibited to talk about sex and desire freely. Why does it think we feel inhibited to talk about our minds and our our sense of self worth and 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 just how we feel freely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that and that was so refreshing in the book, you know, to 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 read about women having crises and figuring themselves out. One, a woman not in her 
20s, uh, you know, uh, um, and I think any time that I um, I read a story, whether it's a real-life story or, or fiction about the struggle, I mean, because we're all struggling, you know, life life is struggle and uh, varying degrees of struggle, certainly, but I think we can all identify with the goal, with, you know, trying to do the right thing. You know, I I feel like I... I'm trying so hard to be, you know, a good person, a good mother. I mean, the amount of times I fail to be a good, you know, or it's not, failing is not the right word, but I feel like I failed. I try, you know, I try to show up at the right time. I try to get there. I try to go to the right building. I try to, you know, all those things that we really try and to get to be frank and honest about the fact that it's hard and we're trying and we you know but that sometimes we get it wrong and you know that just needs to be okay it's i really struggle with with the the idea of striving for perfection you know and the degree to which i think a lot of young women today particularly because of social media think that the answer is to reach for some form of perfection whether it's physically or uh, emotionally psychologically um and and it it shouldn't be possible. <laughs> it just should, it isn't. I don't think. And and yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, and and so therefore, why uh, why don't we celebrate? You know, why don't we celebrate more uh, the things that we, you know, the fact that we struggle and and that it's okay and to embrace our imperfections and um and so anytime i read a character or another human being who is finding ways to accept oneself exactly as they are uh, um it endears me to them and i feel compassion in a world where we are so bombarded with these filtered highlights reels of people's lives that we find ourselves comparing ourselves to that which does not exist which isn't even real it is so important to to embrace our imperfections to celebrate the struggle because it's all part of the journey um, and this book it, it it does just that this character is so so important um and also it's the relationship with her sister. I know you have a sister. Do you recognise that sort of witty sibling back and forth between Martha and Ingrid in this book? You know, I do have a sister, but my uh, sister is 16 years younger than me. And so we never had that experience. And 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 I think, you know, I'm particularly fascinated by the dynamic of sisters because it feels like such a, a foreign land to me. It really feels like a foreign land. You know, um, uh, you know the the sibling thing. I, I was an only child until I was thirteen. I have a brother who's uh, no longer with us, and but it's I I kind of missed out on that. So anytime there are, uh, I think particularly uh, books about siblings, I I have a tendency to gravitate towards them because it just feels um, like a, a language I don't necessarily understand. <laughs> Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. 
Looking for a treat to pair with your favourite book? Bailey's is the perfect accompaniment to enjoy either over ice or over coffee. It's time for us now to move on to your third book, Gillian, today, which is Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. This is a real story about the sex lives of three American women based on almost a decade of reporting. It follows Lena, a young mother whose marriage has lost its spark. She reconnects with someone from her past and has an affair that quickly consumes her. Then we've got Maggie, a 17 year old who allegedly has a relationship with her married English teacher and Sloane, happily married to a man who likes to watch her have sex with other people. Can you tell us a little bit about why you've picked this book? Do you remember identifying with it in particular? I, yeah, well, I I, this, I know so many people, who, so many women who read this book, um, particularly, and were completely blown away by it when it was first published. Um, um, you know, everyone was talking about it. And I think, you know, Lisa Tadeo is something of a, of a genius. Uh, and it was unlike anything I'd ever read before. It's uh narrative journalism and and it had that kind of curious incisive journalistic perspective but it's also a book that really you know cares and honors its subjects so it's about these three women but it's really about who we are as women and it you know it asks big profound questions about uh sexual power uh, politics, desire, it really, you know, it, it, it covers quite a lot <laughs> um, when you dig down into it. It's so refreshing. And it is, as you say, it's this real depiction of women, which is mm. one that I feel we don't often see. We don't see enough in a similar way to what, you know, you're trying to achieve with Dear Gillian with the project. Do you think women are still being reduced to, to one dimensional beings and particularly sexually? in books and films and TV and the media? Well, I, I think it's all about representation um, and empowering women to be able to share their own stories in whatever way that makes the most sense to them. Um, and, and the more books and films and other media we see where women are shown you know, as real complex beings and the more that women are able to be at the helm of these stories and the better we will all do. <laughs> um, you know, if we don't, see ourselves represented fairly then how can we be expected to fully comprehend our interior lives um and then to express them ourselves and to each other it's so important to be able to see ourselves you know whoever we are wherever we've come from whatever our background and uh um uh, it's it's important that we get to to recognize ourselves in the public space. I think the, the impact that that has on, on young girls as well is, is huge. When you, you know that you're represented, you know that your feelings and thoughts are valid, it then gives you courage to, to express yourself even further, even more mm. to, to step into your light um, and to be yourself and, and know the power of your voice. And this book is in many ways about how sometimes women, they, they don't feel they can do that. They control their own impulses you know, to the point where they become totally divorced from them. Is that something that you can identify with, um, I guess, shrinking yourself? Oh, definitely. Uh, definitely, definitely, definitely. And, um, so, you know, certainly from, you know, when I was younger, um, the amount of 
situations that I put myself in knowing that it was the bad it was a bad idea oh my god I mean but you know the the voice of reason and and um um and self-care on my shoulder um saying you know back away from that you know take a step back um and I didn't listen and you know and I still struggle with it which is you know ridiculous I you know I'm I'm incredibly outspoken and um uh and and feel like I you know I'm I it, you know, I'm I'm too outspoken most of the time, and I stand up for myself and my you know and and my needs and what I want and what is fair, etc. And still, yet yeah, I find myself sometimes you know clamming up or you know shining a a light, a verbal light on something that because I'm you know afraid of hurting somebody's feeling, afraid they'll be angry with me, afraid of this, that, and the other, even though I know what I need to say is is important and true and and something that I I need you know and I just uh, I it boggles my mind why those two things can coexist why I could be you know both of those women but it's true and I think it's a lifelong it's a lifelong challenge I mean I, I'm really old and I've been struggling with it for you know for a long time and I don't imagine it ending anytime soon time to talk about your fourth book now which is such a fun age by Kylie Reid a striking and surprising debut novel such a fun age is a big-hearted story about race and the messy dynamics of privilege it tells the story of a young black woman who is wrongly accused of kidnapping while babysitting a white child her well-intentioned employer and a surprising connection that threatens to undo them both can you tell us why you picked this book how has it influenced you Oh gosh. Um I remember tearing through this book, um, just desperate to know what was gonna happen and how any of these impossibly awkward situations are going to be resolved. It's just you know, I, I also found myself thinking back to it for months after I read it. Um you know everything that Kylie Reid writes about in the book is is painfully true, and I think anyone who has read it comes away with some sort of regretful relation to what they've just read. In a way that whether you've been on the receiving end of microaggressions like Amira or like Alix, you've um, acted in a way that you think are good intentions and just come, you know, you just completely misread a situation or um, there's just so much in there about political correctness and how we try and fail to control how we're perceived and, and how we can have the best of intentions but be entirely misguided if you're not actually really paying attention to what the world's and the people around you uh, are saying or, or need of you in that moment. So um, I, I, it was gobsmacking to me. Your podcast, What Do I Know, mm. is very much about drawing attention to voices which aren't usually in the foreground, giving them agency. So uh, what kinds of stories have you been able to shine a light on? 
Well, we started with a few stories about, uh, you know, unsung women heroes in science and um, and medicine. Um, but also uh, I interviewed a woman who was diagnosed later in life with autism. Um, and she speaks about being very eloquently about being labelled and and told um, that, you know, she needs to get better, be fixed, as opposed to in society being, you know, encouraged to embrace that aspect of her and celebrate it in a way or lean into the aspects of her autism that might actually be contributing to the incredibly articulate and empowered crazy smart brain woman that she is and um you know just finding ways to talk about that the the contrast between what she uh was being fed by society and government and the medical community as opposed to what she was actually experienced or wanted to be um getting from them so that was fascinating when we're talking about understanding who we are the perception of others that, that others might have of us and creating these full-bodied uh, images of, of, of these people I mean you said in a in a recent interview um that the, there's two versions of yourself the version that is the actress and then also the version that is the mom do you keep these two selves separate is that important to you how do you do it uh, I'm very good at compartmentalizing and uh, I've I, I think I learned when I was, you know, young, uh, shot to fame in my early 20s and had a baby age 26 and was working crazy, crazy hours and at the same time had my daughter in my trailer. And so, you know, on set, having to completely focus 100% in my trailer, having to completely focus 100% on my child in order to, you know, not abandon her or to to contribute to her feeling neglected. And um, in that, I think because I was so young, I had practised for so many hours, you know, a thousand hours or whatever of of having to do that, that I continue uh, uh, today to, I don't, I don't recognise the actress when I'm with my my kids. Um, it doesn't come up. We don't talk about it. It's not. It doesn't interfere with my life as a mum. And um, you know, I I behave, you know at the the school run or whatever wherever we are. No, you wouldn't know that I was. And I think sometimes when that part of my life intrudes because we're suddenly in a public space, whether they're getting their hair cut or, <laughs> you know, uh, Tesco's or, you know, and somebody says something, that it totally shocks them. It complete they forget. You know, well, my boys are uh, getting on in their teenagers and still it so hasn't been a part of their experience of their mom that they, it's jarring for them and, and they don't like it. Um I have to say, they really don't. And so they will contribute to us choosing to be in places that are not too crowded. You recently wrote a letter of advice to your 16-year-old self, including the brilliant line, chase your dreams, not your boyfriends. 
Um, I feel like if if my mum was to write a letter, it would it would also it would also have that line in it. Is this ethos something that you try to imbue when parenting um, your daughter, but also your sons? I mean, my sons at the minute are so focused on other stuff that um, I know that they, uh, 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 yeah, they don't. <laughs> That they they're obsessed with a particular thing that they do, um, which is a sport thing that they do, and and they are so that's their first love, and there's there's not much time at the minute for um, for romantic um, thoughts, as far as I know. You know, I say that I could be so so naive, but um, um, and so I'm not quite there yet, and I don't imagine there's ever going to be uh, a, another human that will be able to cut through and move to first position above what they're focused on. Um, but we shall see. Uh, yeah, I mean, mo- a good part of my younger life was very much um, seeing the world laid out before me, realizing how you know lucky privileged I was in choice and yet choosing to go over here because that's where he or she went you know I I, it's just it's unbelievable when I think back and you know I've I've had conversations with my daughter who's older and um she is incredibly she follows her she follows she really follows her own heart you know she takes herself off on journeys, even though she's in a long-term relationship. If her partner uh, is not able to travel, she will take herself traveling or go with a friend or, you know, and, you know, he's the same. And so they they, they, they have a good uh, open dialogue, I think, about what their individual needs are for both their personal journeys and for, for them their work. And she tries very hard to put her needs in the forefront. And uh, I'm incredibly proud of her for that. I love to hear it. I really, really do. It's time for your fifth and final book this week, which is The Salt Path by Raina Wynn. Days after Raina learns that Moth, her husband of 32 years, is terminally ill. Their home and livelihood is taken from them. With nothing left and little time, they make the impulsive decision to walk the 630 miles of the sea swept southwest coast path from Somerset to Dorset via Devon and Cornwall. The Salt Path is an honest and life affirming true story of grief, human endurance, and the healing power of the natural world. How did this book speak to you? Whenever I think about this book, it, I get teary. Um, uh, it, it affected me so profoundly. And, you know, th- this was one of the books that I, I listened to in audio book form. Um, and uh, hearing Raina Wynn's voice in, in my ear or um, over my, uh, through the Bluetooth in my car, um, I, I just, their experience was is really terrible and 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 unimaginable circumstances to to suddenly lose everything within a week just suddenly and I know that you know that happens to many people in in under different circumstances but to suddenly find yourself having to let go of the life that you have built up over 30 years and uh contributed to your income in part because they rented out their house, they had animals, they lived off their land and suddenly 
uh, through a bad investment. It would just, they had to turn it over to this other party. And and the way that they um, they decided, you know, at the same time the husband um, was diagnosed with a, a terminal degenerative uh, illness called CBD and and they decided to walk. You know, they couldn't afford um, uh, petrol for their cars. They weren't going to drive. They didn't know where they were going to stay. They didn't want to just camp on people's sofas. They didn't really know. They needed to kind of figure out what next. So the journey takes them through not only the journey of releasing attachment to these material things, takes them through the journey of uh, um, letting go of the resentment of being forced to give away, give up their life that they had built, um, everything that they had an attachment to that we as human beings attach to. It's just, it moved, I get so moved by it. And these individuals had that experience and and found their way to the other side of it. And how they are perceived from the outside, depending on what they said to people along their journey. If they told people that they were on a walk, people laughed and embraced them and told them how wonderful they thought they were. If they revealed the truth about the fact that they were homeless, people turned their back on them and and gathered their children close. And I think that's extraordinary. It's a really amazing story. It's a really amazing journey. Such an evocative book as well. And how do you stay awake to the joys of life and of nature? Are there specific things that you do in your day-to-day to, to stop you sleepwalking through life? I... Um, a couple years ago, uh, got a dog (laughs) and the dog on the one hand, uh, adds to my stress and causes havoc and chaos. And there are a lot of people in my life who curse her on a regular basis. (laughs) And at the same time, she is the thing that gets me out in nature because um, I, twice a day, I take her out and I try really hard to not be on my phone and or not be listening to a podcast (laughs) um, or a book, but just to be. I, I haven't got to the point where I've actually left my phone back in the house, but I, I put one foot in front of the other. I lift my head up. I look at my surroundings, I breathe, I try and stay present there without going through oh, my email and this, that and the other and I should have answered and why didn't I, oh and tomorrow I have to and oh God, I forgot, what did I forget? You know, all of that chatter and try really hard and it's a daily struggle. It It's a daily, you know, but it is so worth it and I feel like I have done something really important for myself and for my being when I've managed to to be on this walk and just have been on the walk. 
knowing that that is enough, that being present is enough. It is such a liberating and peaceful mm. feeling. Gillian, this is a hard one because you have brought some stunning pieces of literature to us today. But if you had to choose one book from your list as a favourite, which one would it be and why? Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's such a horrible thing to say. Um, gosh. Okay, I'm just going to talk about the, the two that it would boil down to, mostly because I feel that they're really important. They start really important questions uh, and conversations, which are, you know, such a fun age, I think, because it really, you know, it forces us to focus on what has become uh, uh, importantly a contemporary dilemma about how, you know, about how we relate to others, uh, big and small, in the world around us. And and I guess that's the same. It says the same about a soul path, you know, how we relate to others. <laughs> you know, if we see somebody on a path who looks homeless or in the middle of our, uh, our you know, our street, how we relate to them and what that says about us. And... Um, I am going to choose Salt Path because, ah, damn, no, I'm not. No, I'm going to choose Such a Fun Age. I'm going to choose Such a Fun Age because of the fact that it feels like it embraces, it's it's a real microscope and, um, oh, magnifying glass, I should say, and, and embraces... Uh, much more diverse conversation but we just need to force those conversations as much as as possible I always say the best books are those that change the way you see the world mm. um, and in turn that changes the way you see yourself and I feel like all of your picks today have done that and the salt path and um, such a funny age in particular so I, I, I completely agree what what gorgeous choices. Thank you so much, Gillian Anderson. It has been such a pleasure, such a joy, such an honour. Um, and I'm so excited as well for Dear Gillian. Don't forget, wherever you are in the world, whatever age you are, you can write to Gillian with your most secret personal fantasies. Just head to www.deargillian.com to submit yours. Thank you so much for joining me. That was so much fun. Thank you very, very much. You really slowed me down. You slowed me down for a whole hour. And I thank you for that. And uh, it was a pleasure. Um, and that's what we're all about. We're yeah. able to be present with each other. So thank you for being present with me and with all of the listeners today. Thank you. I'm Vic Hope and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. <laughs>